Hey folks, Sam Jones here. Welcome to another edition of Off Camera, the show where I get to talk to iconic, creative, curious artists and find out how they got that way. And in this episode, I sit down with actor Ian McShane. Acting wasn't really on the radar of young Ian McShane, who grew up in Manchester, England. Even though his father was a professional footballer for Manchester United in the 1950s, Ian had a normal, working-class upbringing. He liked to play sports with his friends, but when a broken leg sidelined him, his geography-slash-drama teacher asked Ian to audition for the play. He remembers, I got cast in that play and suddenly I thought, I know what I'm doing. In his next year of school, Ian got the titular part in Cyrano de Bergerac, and his teacher convinced Ian's parents to send him to the Royal Academy for Dramatic Arts. There, Ian found his passion and his people, rooming with the young John Hurt, who became his confidant, drinking buddy, and closest personal friend. You can say Ian developed a penchant for playing the rogue early on. His first role ever was in The Wild and the Willing, as a troublemaking college student who has an affair with his professor's wife. The trend continued as he got older and led to memorable performances in projects like Sexy Beast, Jesus of Nazareth, and American Gods. Of all the rogues, scallywags, and rascals he's played, Ian's probably best known as brothel owner and entrepreneur Al Swearingen in HBO's Deadwood, which was abruptly canceled after three seasons, despite much critical acclaim. The show marked a seminal moment in Ian's career. As he tells it, very few things live up to the experience of that show in terms of the quality of writing and the quality of people that you're working with. You get spoiled. Well, luckily for him and fans of the show, Ian will don Al's signature pinstripe suit once again in an HBO Deadwood movie that reunites the cast with creator David Milch. Ian joins off camera to talk about his emotional return to the Deadwood set, his path to sobriety, and the good old days in acting school, tearing up London with John Hurt. So pull up a chair and listen in. Hi, Ian. Hi, Sam. Thank you for doing this. My pleasure. Well, listen, I've wanted to have you on for a long time because I was a big fan of Deadwood. And I have to admit, I was a little bit intimidated having you on because the character of Al Swearingen is pretty intimidating. But I'm happy to report to, uh, to everyone out there that you're a very sweet, kind, gentle man. Well, we'll see how it goes for 10 minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, you know, there's this new Deadwood movie coming out, yeah. which I was very excited to see, because I felt like that series, uh, it ended rather surprisingly. When was our first show? 2002. I remember I was at home in England. can't believe it's that long ago. 2002, we did the pilot. I was, at, I was in England, and they came through with a saying, uh, there's a thing, they want you to do a come and talk about an American television series. I said, I don't want to do an American television series at this minute. But he said, wait, it's HBO. Um, David Milch has written it, and Walter Hill's directing it. I, so I said, well, when do I get on the plane and go and chat with him? I mean, well, because pedigree is a lot, you know. Sure. And I knew Walter. I'd known him personally. Never worked together. We've met sometimes over the years. David, I'd been a big fan of his work, and we met, and... Uh, yeah, and then and sort of about two weeks later, there I was on the set, you know, with the old pinstripe suit on playing Al. Wow. And in 2006, out of the blue, because obviously I've been talking about this the last few days because of the, uh, the emergence of the, of the two-hour movie, um, it was abruptly cancelled. Who knows? Hubris 
Money, it's always about one thing or the other, Sam. You can never know. When lawyers get involved, it's always somebody's word against somebody else's. Basically, I think it was a bit of a pissing contest between executives and David. And David ain't going to back down from anything. And misunderstanding before. And also, I think the news came in. It was like Tim had phoned David and said, are we doing a series or not? Because I've just bought a new house. <laughs> and Tim said, well, you know, would you like to come over and look at it before I sell it? <laughs> if you've got... If we cancel the show, but they did, but he went on to justify and whatever. But no, we we literally it was all weird. It was just sort of like it, we were all assumed, and it wasn't an assumption from anywhere. Everybody had said, "Oh, you're doing a fourth series and whatever," and then it blew up from nowhere. So it was a total surprise. Oh yeah, it really was a total shock. But you know, in some ways, you go. We had those three years. You worked with some wonderful actors. You had an incredible experience doing the show because it's the only show. I think ever that combined, it was like doing theater workshop with television, movies, uh, improvisation. Not that you improvised on the set, but you improvised around the material that was being given. David was in complete control of the narrative in the best sense that he's the best showrunner I ever worked for, that nothing was taken for granted. It's like now if we had a scene sitting here. You know, David would watch it and then he'd go away and he'd see the way the scene was written and it may be he may, he may come back and say, wait, 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 I, I saw something in there and I've written something else too. So in other words, it wasn't the question of the writing was late, the pages were late. It was a constantly uh, organic process. And it was evolved. evolved because we could, because we were in a situation whereby we were on the soundstage, the Gene Autry Melody Ranch, you know, and we had control of everything. The, 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 the horses were there, the, 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 Sets were there, the editors were there, the costumes were there, so he could actually switch in a, at any moment and do another scene. So that was one of the great advantages, that you were in a constant state of, of, um, of renewal of a scene or of actors that would call in, weren't call for the morning, but saying, listen, I've got this idea, come in this afternoon, and then you'd reinvent something or switch it around. And it was always with with the thought of Deadwood in, in mind. I mean, that was it. It was never repetitive. It was always looking to the future. David was never repeating himself. The actors weren't repeating themselves. And it was the most exciting, creative time, I think, that I've been involved with yeah, on the, in that kind of project as a series. You couldn't ask for anything more. When it was taken away, it was more artistically, sort of, um, you were on an artistic diet more than anything else. I mean, you do projects with love, but very few live up to that kind of, experience in terms right. of the actors you're working with, the quality of the writing, the quality of the people you're working with. Uh, yeah, you get spoiled in many yeah, ways. Yeah, because you'd obviously had quite a career before you started Deadwood, yeah. and I would think you'd be forgiven for thinking you'd seen it all at that point. I, you know, I've never thought that way. I come from, you know, that you've seen it all. I mean, it's a fascinating. I mean, I'd done my own series in England about a, an antique deal. Lovejoy. Lovejoy, yeah. which is a completely different kind of... And I produced that, and I directed some of them, so I knew some about the business. But watching, when we came on to Deadwood, and watching what David did, and elevated to another level, I mean, it was just, it was just fabulous. And the quality of the writing, uh, which is always what makes a show. I mean, sure. let's face it, it's always in the script. I mean, sure. you can... You can fake it for a while, but if it isn't there on the page, you soon find out. What was um, different about that about that environment than anything else you'd been on in terms of, like, as an actor, feeling heard or feeling like you have a voice? Well, it always stem, you know, everything always stems from the top. And uh, if you've got someone in the room who's 
brain is just slightly bigger and better than anybody else's, and he happens to be the showrunner, which is Milch. With David, writing was never the problem. It's what you write. It wasn't like he could come there, oh, there's no pages. You think, that's not a problem. David could write a page in a second. It was what he did and what he saw the actors brought to it that he would then adjust and temper in the script and bring some other idea to it, which nobody had been exposed to that before. Yeah, David, he was always thinking creatively of the moment, um, how he could improve it. I mean, and that's true creation. There was an example uh, of, we talked about a thing. I remember one day and Tim told me a, uh, a story that he'd been walking back with David after a particular scene. and. Uh, they walked through this area there with a set where there was double doors and there was a big overhanging ledge. And he walked through and said, watch your, and before he could say, watch your head, David had banged his head on this thing. And he said, geez, David, you okay? And David banged his head from it, rubbed it and said, gee, could I get addicted to that? And the next day, the scene opened and the scene was a guy banging his head against the wall. Now, that may seem crazy, but I know exactly what it means. This, it's David going, yeah, it's another idea. It just gave him. He come, he will use everything. Right. Use everything. I mean, I once, he said to me, oh, you, you know, you're going over to Charlie Udders with that bag in your hand, Ian, but the bag is a MacGuffin. It's a, like you pretend you're posting it, but then the end you get, no, it doesn't matter. I'll do some other. It's just a MacGuffin to get, to get information from Charlie Udder. So I go over there and we do the scene. I've got this sort of bag and I go, oh, well, I'll, I'll, I'll be back later. Talk back, go back to the saloon. And then I threw this bag, this parcel over the bar. David said, uh, Ian, you, you can't throw the, uh, that parcel over the bar. You know? I said, why? It's just a MacGuffin. He said, no, it's got a head in it. <laughs> so he'd been thinking, no, I mean, really, the next minute, the next day, I'm talking to an Indian head, if you remember, when he's got the Indian head. That's right, yeah, that's right. Which is from the first episode when they captured them and he... He talks to the wise Indian about whatever. Now, um, that's, the, that's the greatness of having somebody who just thinks out of the box the entire time. Well, and what a gift to yeah, gift to have. Yeah, gift is Yeah, and, and to have the confidence, the creative freedom from the network to, to sort of play and to sort of incorporate things without worrying so much about, is this okay? Can yeah, I they got this? a little worried at the end about the money, the rising costs, but it was never... I mean, that was HBO and the, the, the difficulty of the show. But the show was about to be, you know, the problem with the show also was, I didn't say, but it was the back end was owned not by HBO. It was, it was by Paramount because they bought David, brought David over. So it was a complicated contract. So, yeah, hubris and money it wasn't anything artistically about the show that made them cancel. It was always down to right. contractual stuff and money, whatever. But anyway, here we are 13 years later. We came back with a two-hour episode. But over the years, I'd see David for breakfast. Or Tim, when we talk about things, it wasn't always about like, oh, Deadwood, oh, God, we may. it wasn't like nostalgia for the wrong reason. It was like, we had those three years, that show was great. And suddenly he said, well, you know, this idea I have, and it was about, you know, 10 years later, reunion day, there seemed a reason why people would come back and could bring the characters back without being contrived. And, you know, the people, Al, and it's 10 years later, so the characters have aged. Sure. They're not the same. Well, I wanted to ask you about that because um, it, it must have been strange to come back. Like, an actor doesn't get a chance to have a reunion with a, with a whole cast like that very often or, or ever. And I wonder if, if it hits you unexpectedly emotionally to, to be back. It was huge. I, um, you know, before you start, I just finished American Gods and I had a month off to grow the mustache again and get Al and get into the, the costume. 
and lose a bit of weight from him because he changed a bit, whatever. But driving to that set the first morning and then walking onto that gem stage, it was very spooky in a very good way. It was kind of very emotional. The whole event was exactly as we'd done it 10 years ago in terms of the work ethic and everybody. But there was an added frisson of, I don't know, um, move, move. Because every time this time you were saying goodbye, you were saying goodbye. You know what I mean? It was like... Because you didn't have a goodbye the I first think, time. No, we just thought, well, somebody said, did you take anything from the set? I said, I never had a chance to. Finish too quick, you know? Never right. had a chance to steal anything. <laughs> steal one of Al's boots or steal one right. So it was like, it was all, wow. How do you get back into the headspace of Al Swearingen after not having to think about playing him for that long? Like, did it take a minute to remember what you built the first time? No, I just there? read that. You just have to read that dialogue and put that suit on, put that, put that undershirt on, those long johns, that, you know, the, rub, the, the suit, the old long john suit, however, with a bit of stain on it. Right. You know, All the pee stains down the way. All stains or whatever he's been wearing for years and the boots. And Al was there, you know, for Is you. that how it works for you? Is it, is it that Not physical? Not always. It's very different. I mean, you know, it, sometimes it's an external thing that gets, you, gets you to the internal. Probably right. Sometimes it's an internal thing that, and, that leaks out and you find when you're finding a character or you're finding what he is. But, it, but when you put tick. the suit back on... Well, that's it. I mean, that suit was great. Journey Brown and I talked about what Al should look like, and we always said that he was like... Al was like, fancied himself as a businessman. So he wore the old pinstripe, you know, the black and grey and the pinstripe banker suit, but he wore the... Uh, but didn't wear a shirt. He wanted an undershirt under it, which is the great look. He never... Um, well, when he'd see Al more, a woman, he'd attempt to put on a tie, whatever, but Al's Al, you know. It gave him an authority, too. Gave him an authority, for, and it, it gets, according to the character, it made the character feel good for himself, yeah. It gave him the appearance, I'm running this joint, you know. Do you remember looking in the mirror when you put it back on for the first time? And yeah, trying... and I said to him, cause I said, keep it this way, because it looks a little baggier on him than it used to, which is good, because he's aged, and you can't right. drink that much without it having an effect on you. And David didn't write Al as he was 10 years ago which is brilliant. There's a lot of themes of aging in your character. Like, Al is definitely feeling the effects of his own mortality. Yeah. And it made me curious what you had to think about to portray someone who's sort of on their last legs and, and how that had to affect you personally too. Like, what age are you in your head? Do you feel the age that your number is? Oh God, I don't think you ever do. I never think, I mean, I look, think of my age, I think, holy shit. Right. Really, you know. But it's it, it doesn't change inside you. It's just the the parts change. I mean, a certain you know. It's um. You know, it's weird thing being an actor. I mean, you either you also either get better or you don't. As an actor, most good actors get better as they get older. It's the dodgy ones that don't. Have they got to look out? If it's just based on some other kind of quality, that's when you're not going to be as interesting when you're older. But the really good actors, you know who get older, who always seem a little older to begin with. I mean, I don't think I ever came into my own until, I mean, I've had a blessed career in many ways, but I don't think it's like the last, the last 30 years of my life have been the most interesting, you know? When you talk about getting better, is it that you're getting to know yourself more? Oh yeah, I think it's like the, 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 the constant, you know, if you do the same thing, and it's not, of course it's different all the time, but when you get when you get you know painters, artists, people who try and you know, it's like when they say 
the last thing David worries about is writing. It's what he writes. That's what it is. He can write a page. It's like saying, if you look at Anselm Kiefer or any great artist, it's not painting that's the problem. It's what do they paint? So how does that it's apply to they, you? And it's what like role? as an act, it's like saying, when I'm looking at a role, it's like, it's like saying, it's not that I'm worried about. It's how do I approach it from an angle that is more interesting to me to make this character something else. Or it's when you get offered a part. And I love it sometimes when they'll send you a script, you know, they'll send you a lot of money, a lot of money and then they'll uh, add a note on and they'll say this part because it's gone. And you read it and you know, this is bullshit. You, know, <laughs> you just say, well, where is that in the character? They, should, they share the same equality. They share the same, they've lost in this and the dialogue. And you go, well, you're just hoping I'll see into this, but I don't see anything in this script that I can be done from that. So they're trying to sell you with well, the notes on, you on what's on not on the whatever, page. But, and then it doesn't work that way. But some, um, well, sometimes the check can convince you that it's worked <laughs> that way. But that's, a, that's another side of the business. You know, we all do, do things for different reasons. Yeah. But when you do get something like Deadwood, which was constantly amazing, and I say, I use that word, not advisedly, completely, because it was. Most of it was, when it came through, it was remarkable for whoever was giving that dialogue. Right. And every character in the show got their full weight. And that was the great thing about it. He didn't come every week, David, with a script about where my character, Al Swearingen, you know, got a blowjob, made a big speech, and killed somebody with a knife. I mean, it happened, but it right. didn't. But it didn't have, that's a network show. The same thing with the twist every week. The thing about the cable is they're constantly pushing the envelope, trying to make it, and you're telling a story about, and you're hoping the audience is with you, and you're telling a story about civilization, and that's what Deadwood was about. It was about these motley people who come to this town in the middle of America in the 19th century where there's nothing. And they make this law, it was a lawless. It was a, then it became a territory, then it became a state. And gentility has come to Deadwood a bit. You know, there's a telegraph, there's a telephone in town. Only one. Yeah. And as Al says, you know, what do we need more than one for? Any man worth his salt knows the advantage of being unavailable. It's one, <laughs> that's a great line, you know. It's great because it's modern, a, well, that's too. That's a great line, though. And every man knows the advantage of being unavailable. It's an important thing to be a guy. You said once that, and I think it might have been in reference to the new Deadwood film, that you were really playing David Milch. You weren't playing Al Swearingen. Yeah, it, David... Um, David has a complicated history, you know. He talks about father figures like his own father who didn't get on with it, but now he thinks had Alzheimer's disease because David's condition now is, you know, we know that's been announced, but David is a little diminished, which is sad, but David was, David for me is, David will always be the brightest guy I ever, I had a conversation with him was just fucking amazing. I mean, if you ever met him, it was just amazing. It would go anywhere and he was, and he was very aware and he knew it, which is a great thing. Because his, his breadth of knowledge about, you know, and his, his uh, polymath quality, which and he probably has. Probably his first. observational nature. Of observational being nature combined with an intellectual history is, is devastating because he can really talk about anything. I remember being at a symposium on filming and screenwriting with um, Shane Black and Sidney Pollock. And they didn't say a word after 10 minutes. They, no, and it wasn't because David took over the thing. I remember seeing Sidney Pollock afterwards, who said 
he's unbelievable. I mean, so it was always a privilege to be around listening to him. But in the end, Swearingen is the closest to David because of that complexity, that complexity and that um, uh, ambivalence about violence, about sex, about what you say in real life, what you can say to people. And that's, you know, Hobbesian life in those days was, you know, short, brutish and nasty. Yeah. You're lucky where we're born, mostly, you know. Well, let's talk about where you were born, and, and let's, let's use that transition to get into your upbringing a little bit, because I had no idea until I started reading about you that your father was a famous footballer for Manchester United. And I was curious, growing up back then, if there was the same celebrity or attention paid to the son of a famous yeah. footballer. No, it was a whole different world then. I mean, you, yeah, I mean, my dad played for Manchester United, and I played as a kid, but I never felt that. No, I... So you didn't walk around school going, well, I've got sort of a charmed life because my father's... No, no, the, no, uh, no. I mean, in those days, when my dad played, what, what was the highest I ever got paid? It was like 20 pounds with a five-pound win bonus. Is that true? Oh, yeah, in the 1950s, a whole different world. But he reminds you stories about... Um, yeah, I've always loved those kinds of stories, but there's one about Marilyn Monroe when she was married to Joe DiMaggio. Right. And she goes out to entertain the troops in the USO, and he's with her. And DiMaggio was a low-key guy, you know what I mean? And she goes out there, and they're entertaining the troops, and she goes out, and then she sings with Bob Hope, whatever, and Bob Hope, and she comes back again. He says, how'd it go, honey, you know? And she said, oh, Joe, you've no idea what it's like to go out there and 50,000 people yelling your name. And you say, he went, no, I don't. You think every night of his life, he'd walk out and they go, you know what I'm saying? But he's, sure. I mean that, and he doesn't, some people affect a different way. I mean, they're screaming for you. Athletes are the most, you know, I mean, that's, that's what makes it that way. It's like, saying, there was a story last week I was talking about saying, you know, when you go home and you go to a football game, you know, do you, um, you know, the crowd must react. They say, no, the last thing the crowd at a football game was. And now we're presenting the half-hour charity raffle will be held by Ian McNair. Boo, get off the fucking... They want us... They're not there to see you. I remember I went to a boxing match in London 30 years ago and Bruce uh, introduced Bruce Willis. I mean, he suffered abuse like you never heard. Get off. They want to see the fighters. They don't want to see some actor going, hi, everybody, my latest... They don't want to see that. So I've not, I understood that from a young age about right. being a son of an athlete. You know what I mean? I mean, I wasn't bad at it. I wasn't a bad soccer player, but I certainly wasn't up to that standard. So pretty early on, I never, it was not, oh, I'm going to be a soccer player. You wonder now when kids go, you go, are you better than your dad? So why would you want to do it? Unless you were really some kind of genius. It's not, you know, it's like act, sons of actors. You go, talent, I work with a few of them. You think talent isn't genetic, you know, <laughs> it doesn't get passed on. You think, I guess through connections, you know, you'll see whatever, but it wears out. You think, why would you, just because your dad's an act, just because, you know, is your dad a plumber, you're going to be a plumber too, whatever? doesn't work that way. It's funny. I would wonder if, if when you would go play football, if the other boys would be like, well, let's see what the McShane kid No, has. you know, no, I wasn't, it wasn't like that. I mean, I was never, okay, I got on with, you know, most people. I mean, I'm very easy going. I never, I played fullback wherever they put me. And I never had that kind of ego about that. And uh, I just happened to break my leg, you know, when I was about, when I was about 11. This was earlier on. And, and uh, during that, I was a school play, and this guy, the geography teacher, Leslie Ryder, who was casting the play, and he said, you'll be good. I was just getting better from the leg. And he, I said, oh, fine. And suddenly, you know, I walk on the stage. I mean, I, I'm like, 
It was like, no, and then suddenly you know, you think, oh, this is, I know what I'm doing. So did it sort of hit you all at once, like, oh, I can do this for a kind career? Of, like, and you- I must say, looking at it, um, well, I, I started to do it, and then we did this play. It was, it was a very ambitious school play. It was a Jean-Paul Sartre sort of existential drama called Nick Krasov. And he was a very, and he was the geography teacher, Leslie Ryder, but he was the drama teacher at school. And you know, at school, everybody chips in. Sure. Everybody does. Sure. And he said, next year we're going to do Sir de Bergerac and you're going to play it. I said, whatever you say, sir, can I go and, you know, I was a very regular kid, played sports, get everything. I mean, it wasn't, you know, it wasn't like an acting, but every, but the next year when I came back and did Cyrano, which is, you know, one of those enormous parts and whatever, and it was like, oh, I really enjoy this. I know it. And it was always like I knew yeah, you know a bit more about what you're doing than and instinctive. When you were on stage, were you nervous or did it no. feel normal? No, n- nervous, but in a good way, like, oh, wow, yeah, this is, you know, where's he going to? So did you get some inkling that from somebody else or from yourself that you were actually No, that him. He said, you know, do you ever thought of doing this? And I said, I don't know, really. He said, well, I think you should go and audition for drama school. So we came around, I had a chat with my mum and dad, and I went down with my mother or auditioned for the Royal Academy. Yeah. I didn't even know there was another drama school. I and did you auditioned. have to be upper class to No, you know, but in those days, this is interesting. It was just after that period, because this was like, when was this, 1960. 1950s is when you'd got like, yeah, Albert Finney, who came from the local area, Albert was from like down the road, Salford, I was from Stratford. And Albert had gone to, to a drama school in 1954, and then like you've got the area of Peter O'Toole, suddenly it became, yeah, it became like working class kids, whatever, but not hysterically so, because when, when, when I went to audition and they said, yeah, we've accepted you, if you can, um, you know, yeah, if you can, you know, get your fees, the fees were big. And those days, and my mom and dad, I mean, they, were, they weren't by no means poor, but you're talking about serious fees. So what we did, you applied to, the, to your education authority, and they said, if you've passed your university entrance exams, which is, you know, you had to have two A levels, yeah, we'll give you a grant to go to drama school. So I took my, taken my two A levels, my three A levels, and I passed two out of three, which meant, yeah, they would give me a grant to go to drama school, and they gave me like five bucks a week to live on, you know. <laughs> so you had a bit of a scholarship. So it's kind of a scholarship, yeah. They, the lanky, the local academy, the local council paid for that, and then whatever. I worked in the summer, went to drama school, and down there, and uh, yeah, and then I went down there on my own when I was like seventeen, just about to be eighteen. And a year and a half later, my last term, I, I got. Johnny Hurt was my closest friend. John right. Hurt, the drama school. Yeah, John had got this part in the movie. And, and John Hurt was older than you, right? Johnny was old. He'd been to he'd been to art school, and he'd come back to drama school. Could you tell back then that he was great? And was he sort of like, did you look at him as a friend or as a mentor? No, we looked at him for friends. We know we're great. I mean, you're 19 years old. You're just having a good time at drama school. You're so it was it was like you're a, in the pub. Oh no, we're not talking about. Oh, you do the scene. We didn't go back and rehearse scenes. All that pretentious crap. You went out and got drunk and tried to. You tried to hang with a young girl. That's why I'm in drama school. <laughs> you know, and then you learned along the way. But it's amazing how all that that two years afterwards came into play all those voice lessons which seemed strange you go oh oh ah 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 and all the exercises and then because we did fencing we did um improvisation we did restoration comedy i mean i'm thinking back now it was pretty comprehensive 
expensive. And when we had a guy called Yat Malmgren came in, who, who, who directed this technique of interior acting with something. So there was a pretty broad spectrum of teachers you had, you know? Who were the acting heroes of your, like, of well, the... Well, it was movie actors. It was never British actors to me. I mean, obviously, you looked up to, like, you know, the big three. I mean, Sir John and Sir Ralph and, um, and Sir Lawrence. I mean, they were the three king actors, but it was staged. But my first job, as I said, I was about to leave John school. Like I was there, I was there. My last term, Johnny was about to leave. I was going in. I was a term below him, but we shared a flat together. And he got a part in this movie called The Wild and the Willing. Right. And they were looking for this. They couldn't find the lead, which was this 18-year-old uh, rebellious uh, North Country student who has an affair with his professor's wife. And John said... You, you, and the same agent <laughs> who we had, he came to see the show, and the next day, I'm having tea with him somewhere, and they said, we'd like to um, give you an audition, come out to, um, I remember taking a bus, taking a bus out to the Pinewood Studios. I lied to the drama school saying, I'm going to the dentist's. And I went and did a film audition with, uh, with great Paul Rogers, Virginia Maskell, and then I did a, another one. Then I went back in the afternoon to school, back on the bus, and and then the next day I got this phone call saying, "Well, you got the part." So I had to go, "What?" So I went back into drama school and said to John Furl, who was the principal, "I said, sir, I lied to you. I didn't go to a dentist yesterday. I did a film test, and they they accepted me." And uh, and he looked at me and said, well, if you decide to do it, you know, we might not give you your diploma. And I couldn't help but go, diploma? I, well, I can act. I can <laughs> you know, put that on a shingle, you know, actor. I can act. I got <laughs> signed by Sir John Gilgan. I thought, and then, of course, he was, I think he was slightly humorous because they did give me my diploma and I left. And John and I did that. That, that story makes it sound really easy. Like well, you, you know, hopped on a bus, cabins, you went but down Then we went straight back after that, and I did, we did a play together called Infanticide in the House of Fred Ginger at a theater club, which had more swearing in it than Deadwood, if you can believe. Really? It was a theater club. And then, and then we did, I did my first television live, armchair theater, a two-hander with a girl called, which was a great, about a rock and roll singer, which I, got, I played this rock and roll singer and this lady violinist. So in your first three, and then I had a West End play. So it's like my first four jobs were as eclectic and lucky as you can be. And then you got it, and you think, I'm 19 years old. Then your life catches up with you, and you think, I've only been out of, I've only been out of Manchester two years. Right. And then it all settles down, and then your career becomes much more. You know, the film wasn't a huge success, which gives you a certain reality check, which is fine. And you know, and I'm seeing, I've never been wide and eyed and doe eyed about myself anyway. It's not like, you know, I've never been, as we say in England, up myself, you know what I mean? You see <laughs> yeah. it from another angle. And Johnny and I, over the years, were, were great friends. I mean, we did projects together. And he was a wonderful actor and a wonderful friend. And I miss him. And I just, you know, it's, last thing we did together was, what was it? Um, no, we did Hercules. Not the most auspicious movie, but we had a good time. We'd be in Budapest having long lunches, talking about our lives together. Yeah. Hey, folks, let's take a break from the conversation so I can talk to you about this week's sponsor, Boosted. Now, one of the cool things about doing this show is that we have a lot of great sponsors. And one of my sort of caveats to having a sponsor on the show is that I have to love the product and believe in it because I'm telling you about it. And so as a result, I get to try all these amazing products. And a couple weeks ago, this big box showed up at the studio and in it were two boosted boards. 
They even sent me a helmet, which I gotta say is a pretty good idea with these things. Now, Boosted is a company that makes electric skateboards and scooters. And if you listen to this show at all, you know that I'm an avid skateboarder and motorcycle rider. And so it was like Christmas when this box showed up and I got on the mini, which is more like a traditional skateboard that has a kicktail. And our producer Crawford got on the longboard and Crawford is not a skateboarder. So I was a little nervous, but we got on these things. It took just a couple minutes to figure them out. And we were cruising to lunch and having a blast. I love the Mini because I can ride it like a traditional skateboard and still wheelie and jump curbs and stuff like that. And Crawford likes the longboard because he feels totally comfortable even though it's not his sport. And what's amazing, once we figured out that there's all these different modes, that you can put it in a beginner mode and feel totally safe, or you can put it in the pro mode, and you're on this hyperspeed, futuristic skateboard that flies through the streets. And we're just having so much fun on them. And I will say there was a note in the package that said, there's return shipping instructions. And I'm just going to go on record right now that I'm not giving these things back. So I really need you all to buy these boosted boards so they love off camera and I can keep riding them. And here's what they want me to say. And these things are all true. Boosted's vehicle-grade electric skateboards and scooters are the modern solution to your transportation woes. With a 22-mile range and max speeds of 24 miles per hour, Boosted is perfect for both running to the store and traveling across town. Designed to provide a luxurious experience, it's no wonder that Boosted was one of Time Magazine's best inventions of 2018. And with five options to pick from, including their new scooter, the Boosted Rev, there's a personal electric vehicle that's tailor-made for you. Starting at $61 a month with financing, there's no better time to change how you move than now. You know, with these boosted boards, you never have to rent another clunky old shared scooter again. You can carry them right into the building that you're going to, and they're super fun. I encourage everybody to try one of these things and write me an email, tell me about your experience, and I'm going to post more stuff of us cruising around Santa Monica on our new favorite sponsor, (laughs) Boosted Boards. And right now, Boosted is offering our listeners $75 off the purchase of an electric vehicle when you use the code CAMERA at checkout. So go to BoostedBoards.com and use the code CAMERA at checkout to get $75 off your vehicle. That's BoostedBoards.com, promo code CAMERA at checkout for $75 off. And as a special incentive, anyone who buys a Boosted Board and uses the code CAMERA, if you send me a video of you riding your new Boosted Board, we'll post your video on our social media sites and we'll send you an off-camera care package. In addition, if anyone wants to come to Santa Monica and ride a boosted board with me to lunch, send me an email and I'll pick one person and we can do that. So let's go skating. Let's ride our boosted boards. I love this company. And now back to the show. Well, I'm so intrigued by what those late night conversations with you and John Hurt would have been like. And and if you worried about anything career-wise back then or if it was just too much. No, we just get pissed. What, we just what got would some you talk serious about? drinking. Some say, oh, we bitch about every other actor in the world. Actors are like, it's fun, though, because you don't really mean it. It's your way of self-protection. It's your way of talking about what's good and what's bad and whatever. And you work with somebody. Besides which, you can bitch and moan about somebody if you've never worked with them. When you work with them, it's like, well, what a lovely guy. You know, what, <laughs> a, what a fantastic. Because it's, it's the way you see it. It's, um, uh, it's sport. You know, acting is sport. I mean, you get out there. It's like you arrive in the morning. What, you arrive hoping you know the lines on the set, hoping everybody will be as up for it as you are, and then you go from there. And the director's interesting, and sometimes when it's not, you go, well, 
and you suss it out within a few years, think, well, I, I got to take care of that because he can't take care of that. You got to look at this and then it's sometimes it's self-protection, sometimes it's all out. I feel like with the wild and the willing, sort of that first foray into that roguish type character. You, you played a character that was on the university campus and caused a bit of trouble. Did you ever worry about getting seen as a certain way and those were the kind of jobs you were getting? Oh, I think you do. You got known as, you know, more of an extrovert character, as a um, cheeky chappy that they used to say in those days. Right. But that never worried me at all. But, you know, I, at the time, I looked at my, my career, my life, and I never planned a career. It's like we didn't have that. English actors never had an agent, a manager, or whatever, how you're plowing your way through. It wasn't Hollywood. It was like saying you'd go from, you know, a, a radio, from a play to a television, to a movie, back to a play, to a television, to a movie, whatever. Take him out, a radio play maybe now and again, or do something else. It was never like a planned out. Now, this year I'm going to do two movies. Then I'll, I never did. I looked at it as a, you know, it was a, how lucky I am to be doing this gig for a start, that I wasn't back in Manchester. My friends were working for you know, some factory or working at ICM or whatever. And I'm thinking, how lucky am I? Still think that way. It's better right. than working. I mean, we make that joke. Of course it's work, but it's a different kind of work. It's a stimulating thing that you've been able to, to um, you know, be part of over the years. And it's a constant thrill to be able to earn your living and go through life, you know, going on to great locations, meeting interesting people. Some of the time, maybe not meeting it, but most of the time, yeah, it's a fascinating business to be able to be part of, and you're part of it. So you're very privileged in one way. You never, I've always been aware of that, coming from where I come from. I think most English actors are in that sense. They don't take it for granted. Right. It didn't do the job to be a celebrity. It didn't do the bit to be famous. It did the bit because I'm rather good at what I do. People are rather good at acting. That's what you do. If you get lucky along the way, that adds another level to it. But it's a weird business because it's full of every sort and every kind of business, full of every kind of person, full of every kind of... Um, when you do certain films, you know what they're going to be like. You have to temper yourself into it, you know? Right. I would imagine there. you certainly have had stretches in your career where there's been work, but it hasn't been... Yeah, I mean, from about my mid-20s to when I sort of was about 40, I mean, I... I did a lot of interesting work, but I was more interested in having a fantastic social life. Right. Not really, because, you know, I thought, I'm still young. What, do I want to save it? I've done all the good work and then have a drink? No, I'll have a drink now. And I, I enjoyed my life enormously up to a point when it got a little out of control and you go, whatever, and then you dial it back and you find, wow, I'm just about the right age now to really have a, an interesting career. And it kind of worked for me that. That, that is interesting. And that wasn't planned in that way, but it did happen that way. Right. It kind of seems like you moved to America around the time when you realized you may have needed to grow up a little bit or you needed to... Yeah, in the mid-70s, then I met my wife, uh, Gwen, who has been an enormous influence on my life. She was an actress when I met her. But after a few years, she decided that she'd rather, you know, follow me around, whatever. Very gifted actress, Graham, but she's a great woman. We're still together. Um, I still look to her. She's still the smartest person about certain things that I'll ever ask, which is important. And, uh, you know, my lifestyle at the beginning when we first met was exactly the same. But eventually you go, this is somebody who I want to change your life for. Yeah, you want to change your life. And say, yes, she was part of all that. Yeah. And it's it's paid off to an enormous degree. It's funny, you're describing this wisdom of, of knowing a certain time in your life, have as much fun as possible, 
it was almost like you were waiting to grow into yeah. this gravitas, this this wisdom that comes with an older age. I didn't have it. I wasn't looking like the parts, and I wasn't looking like the parts already. So what do you mean by not looking? I don't because you you check physically. You go through different stages, you know. And when I was like, I mean, it's like, all right, but it wasn't. You know, you think I'm not at the right stage yet. It's you're going through something else, and suddenly, um, I think it was going to England, doing getting Lovejoy, and putting that together. And then that, it, I never forget, my partner, Alan McEwen, we did this show, Lovejoy, and he managed these two writers called Ian Lafrenet, Dick Clamour, but Ian Lafrenet was the one I wanted to adapt, Lovejoy. And uh, he said, yes, we went to England, we presented this, and they said yes, and we did the first year, it was successful. And then as a, produ a guy took over at the BBC called um, Michael Great, who Michael, uh, Michael is a, who's, Uncle was Lou Grade, big time impresario, very funny man who produced movies like well he did. I did the one. I did Jesus from Nazareth. Raised right. the what he did this. He made this wonderful remark about a film he did made, Raised the Titanic, where he lost a lot of money. I mean, he came out with this wonderful remark. He said it would have been cheaper to lower the Atlantic. <laughs> but that's the But fortunately, Michael wasn't as funny as his uncle. But Michael lost out a few deals, and he became head of. BBC, and he said, like, oh, well, we'd like to, you know, we'd love to do the show again, but we don't like the independent deal. And if you want to come and work for the BBC, I said, I don't want to work for the BBC. I said, this deal, Alan and I put it together. I found the book, Alan got, we got the writers together, we did this. We said, fine. And that's when we said, oh, go away, we'll do something else. And I came back and did a few jobs. In the meantime, got sober, and Alan carried on. And then the guy that came back in BBC in like 1989 said, um, Listen, remember that Lovejoy you did for us? I'm not, I'd love that show. I'd love you to come back, same deal. And then we came back together and we produced the show and we did five years. And yeah, life after that became very, you know, different. We moved to England for a while. We still came back here. And your life takes on a different pattern. And you take, it's not you take your, what you do more seriously when you're there, but you see a pattern emerge in which you can be part. And you can take control of your own career to a certain extent. You're never in total control unless you think you are. And of course, nobody's in control of anything. I mean, you know, that's why in Hollywood nobody knows anything. They always think they do. And you do sometimes, but it's, that's why it's a trip when, when a film like, you know, it's like John Wick. To, to segue from in here for there, and you know the first movies come to New York. Twenty, you know they they seduce you with it. It's good. It's a good line. Come to New York for two weeks, you have a good time over right. Thanksgiving. Yeah. You're in a great hotel, great part, and you know you you look at it and you go, oh yeah, it's got Johnny Leguizamo, it's got Willem Dafoe, it's good. And here we are, six years later, doing number three, which is bigger and better. It's grown into something great, but you didn't know it at the time, but you took the chance. Sometimes it pays off, but they didn't know. Don't tell me they knew six years ago that he that was going to be making a third one. Exactly. Making a third one, you know, with an eighty million dollar budget, and everybody go, "Oh, it's fabulous." That's why people love this business. Hey, folks, let's take a quick break from the conversation so I can talk to you about this week's sponsor, Lightstream. Are your credit card bills keeping you up at night? Are your interest rates in the double digits? Look, when I was starting my business and I was a struggling photographer, I was financing camera gear and all kinds of things to keep my business afloat. And when you're trying to make your career happen, you've just got to rely on credit cards and any means necessary to keep it going. And that can lead to some really unfavorable terms and some really big credit card debt each month. But now there's a way to deal with that and keep your debt manageable. 
You can be smart and pay off your credit card balances with a credit card consolidation loan from Lightstream. You can get a fixed rate as low as 5.95% APR with AutoPay. Not only can you save thousands in interest, but you can get a loan from $5,000 to $100,000 and there are no fees. You can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. Everybody goes through periods of life where they have debt or where they need to finance things or when they need to take a risk on themselves. And Lightstream is a way to make that debt work for you. Plus, Lightstream is a division of SunTrust Bank, one of the nation's largest financial institutions, so you can have complete peace of mind. And if you want to save even more, off-camera listeners get an additional interest rate discount. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com slash camera. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash camera. And here's where I read the disclaimer. Subject to credit approval. Rate includes 0.5% auto pay discount. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash camera for more information. And now back to the show. You mentioned that you got sober in the middle of that sort of transformation of growing into who you were. And I was curious what the event was that sort of made you think, well, I have to make a change. Do you know, it was, I, uh, sometimes they talk about you have an epiphany, and I did. It was one day my wife was out, and I was opening up a new, and I thought, am I out of my fucking mind? Yes. And I made a phone call. And from that moment... Wait, you were opening up what? I was opening up everything you could think of. (laughs) (laughs) It was two days after... It was two weeks after Christmas. Every bottle? Every gift that had come in? I was fine. I was watching The Third Man. I know it was a combination of Orson Welles, the drugs and the booze and me, whatever. And I went, you know, I'm on. Yeah, fuck that. And I went to... I remember, I went to a meeting and I've been sober ever since. That was 32 years ago. It's a very odd feeling. But I had some great people. I spoke to some people at the time. It's one of those things that you don't even... Don't even question it. It became a thing about, I don't even ask it anymore, about why. It's kind of something happened to me that was quite extraordinary. I'll always thank for it, thankful for it. And I don't must want to make comments about anybody else. It's like that something will take over your life. It's a higher power. It's something else that, that you don't question now. It's like saying the last thing you think of. Stress happens to you. It's no longer thinking like the old days when people go, oh, God, how do I get through this? You go, well, you get through it by thinking about it and, you know, dealing with it, not by not, by not dealing with it. Right. Now, right. This is fine. People don't deal with it. That's fine. But you know, eventually you have to. You know, you mentioned your wife, and you've been married, what now, 30-something years? 39 years. And she's your third wife. Yeah. And and it made me curious, like, you know, that idea that how how lovely it is to discover, after this much living, this much career, something that fits you that well. But love's a difficult thing. You know, love is not... Love is not lost. Well, it is. Part of it is that. But it's also a lot of other things which you discover and can be as rewarding or more rewarding than those initial lustful ideas, which, but they have to happen along the way, too. You know, sure. so it's being, you know, loving somebody is a real, it's a, it's, it's a great addition to your life if you're prepared to do it and continue with it. And if you're not lazy about it, that's either about your wife or your kids. It's all different kinds of love. But that unconditional kind, which you can talk about, but it's a, it makes you better, I think, as a person and as an actor, understanding that. Can you get a bigger understanding? Rather than dismiss it, every time anything goes bad, to dismiss it, think it through a little more. I think that's what you gain through age, and that's what you gain through. You know, there's an old saying that you, youth shall be overcome through wisdom and treachery, you know, which I still think is a good line. <laughs> and here we are 32 years later. 
And you're still like, yeah, that was great. And it's as if it happened yesterday. You know? Did it feel a bit like a lost decade for you? Like oh, having kids yeah. and being in London and having that? Oh, not just London, but here. Yeah, I mean, there's still places I drive through and I go, oh, Dad, whoa, don't want to look at that one. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> wow, I remember. Yeah, 1970. Let's go past you. Put your foot down, Arthur. <laughs> how, how did the discipline of, of going through that, of getting sober, how did that? Well, how did, you know, it's like how did it affect say, the rest. Well, of you your know, life? it's like saying that you were always a high, what you call a high, not high maintenance, but high achieving. I was, you know, you 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 have a drink, whatever. I never drank when I was on the set, but that doesn't mean to say I'd only stopped drinking three hours before I went on the set or started immediately finished. But I mean, there was this thing: I have a shower and you're on the set. You knew the lines. Always knew the lines. Always knew. It. But it was like saying, it's a different attitude. But when you come with the clarity of something else, it's like, wow, that's great. Right. Because I would think there would be ancillary benefits to learning how to be disciplined enough to oh, break a habit. Oh, there are. Yeah, that, absolutely. Yeah. Without, I mean, you were disciplined then from how when you stopped and went to bed. Now, all I need is, because you don't need, you know, I need about three and a half hours sleep. So I can, it was all calculated. Then you get up and go, look, well, you know, it's a cold shower, the old Paul Newman trick ice on the face for three hours. You're, you know, you go, hi there, you know, <laughs> eye drops go in and you think, I'm sober, I'll face the world. Did it change your relationship with your kids? Oh, God, yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. My two kids, Morgan and Kate, yeah, I'm very close to them. Have been for the last 20 years. I'm my grandkids, yeah, they're, my, they're all my daughters. So, yeah, we're very, yeah, we all like each other, yeah. I love the idea that you can keep on learning and, and gaining wisdom and that you don't get finished. Oh, yeah, but, uh, but also I think, you know, it comes from your background. And my, my, my parents, I came from a very loving background, so I had nothing to bitch and moan against, basically. Maybe that's what I was trying so hard to bitch and moan against. And you think, no, because I'm, I'm very close to my mother. My dad was the sweetest guy, a very gifted athlete. He couldn't make a cup of tea. He wouldn't know what to do. I mean, I remember once when my mother got sick and he was in the kitchen looking out and said, are you looking at the stove, Dad? Dad said, oh, well, don't be cheeky with me. I said, no, I'll say, a cup of tea, we put the kettle on, be dead. But then he comes from that, man, never made a kettle, never made a cup of tea in his life. But though, so what? Nicest guy in the world. Um, I came from a very loving background. They never, when I wanted to be an actor, it wasn't like they were, oh, you can't do that. My dad was like, oh, what do you want? Try it out. So you had sort of this I'm really confidence great. from... No, I'm, no, I've been almost... Con you know, it's like Johnny Hurt said that to me. And Johnny Hurt once said, you came from a very loving background. And I said, but this is deep in our relationship towards the, you know, to about three years ago, I went in Budapest, and John would say, because he knew my mom and dad, I knew his, he came from a very complicated family. His father was a vicar, his brother was studied at Ampleforth to be a Catholic priest for 10 years, and then became a vicar, then got married, had five kids. So John, I don't think John, John said he never heard his parents say he loved him, you know. Big it, thing. Isn't never it funny that... that. that both of you become actors. Both of you decide to figure out life through your professions. And you both came from such different backgrounds. Yeah, but that's, that's horse racing. It's what makes it great, you know. That's what makes it great whenever you walk on a set and there's another actor there. Or a new actor. And you want them to be as good as, you know. What we say it's a great thing is when, when people come to your show, uh, what do you do? Do you intimidate them or whatever? When they come, they should feel like they're on the best show in the world. They've been invited on to make your show better. That's when people come on. They say, "Oh, they treat guest stars." You think, "No, guest stars should be come on." They add, they sprinkle fairy dust over the show. They've come on to add something else to it. So you know, not just you, and the more the merrier. Right. And the show is it's not just about you. I mean, I always remember that early Milton Berle sort of maxim quote when he said. 
better to be a shit and a hit than a hit and shit. <laughs> and he's right. If, if the whole project is great, everybody benefits from it. But if they say, oh, Sam, you were fantastic in that. The show wasn't too good and the other people, nobody's going to fucking remember it. That's but if right. it's the whole, it's like Game of Thrones. Everybody benefits from Game of Thrones. It's a much loved show. And people within it, you know, whatever reason or not, some are, but they'll all benefit from it because they're all part of this event. Right. A bit like Deadwood, a bit like shows that you know, like John Wick, everybody comes off better. And it's very nice being part of something that you know. It's like the last two days, it's going to events. It's much nicer going to an event where you know it's sort of predetermined that people like it than, oh, the word's still out, whatever. It's like when we did a publicity for Hellboy about a month right. ago, about six weeks ago. And I thought, you know, it cl what classically happened was, you know, everybody goes, it's tracking, tracking really well. You go, oh, marvelous, tracking, whatever the fuck that means, you know. And then suddenly it falls off the face. And you go, it suddenly disappeared. And you go, wow. And I felt bad. David Harbour, who was a wonderful actor to work with, I love yeah. David, and he was great in it. But they really had the knives out for him. It's interesting how they suddenly got the knives out for the Hellboy. And it had nothing to do with him or the film itself because the guy who wrote the, the comic book, yeah. Mike Magnella, hated the sort of two films that had come before. He thought they weren't comic books. They were like, they were, I mean, they were beautiful, but that's Guillermo del Toro's vision of it, much more metaphysical, another take on Hellboy. He wanted the slap bang, the comic book attached, in your face more, you know, slap bang, wallop, Hellboy, the story, grip, and that's what they tried to do. And of course, the critics... <laughs> it wasn't acceptable. No, they were like, oh, well, it's not that. And you go, well, they had the knives out for it. And David took the battering, which is unfair, an actor, because he's a fine, fine actor. Yeah. And I saw it, and it wasn't, you know, he said, you go, what, what gave you such a hard-on about this movie? There's been many worse horror movies than this, but occasionally it happens. They'll pick on it. I remember another movie he did, Hot Rod I made, which they suddenly gave these terrible reviews to. And of course, like 15 years later, it's a cult movie. The film I made with, it's a comedy with Andy Samberg and Akiva. Right, it's a yeah. very funny movie. It's wacky as hell about, you know, I've got this stepdad who needs a new heart. And Andy does all these stunts to get a new heart for him because he wants to beat the shit out of it before he dies. It's a completely insane plot. But it's got great style to it. It's got a great 70s soundtrack. And it's a real. And I saw it on a plane. And my son said to me, Hey, Dad, you see, it's his favorite movie. I love them when people go, you know, the, when people in the street, when they accost you something, they go, Oh, they go, Deadwood, I love Joy. Um, but when they go, Hot Rod. Hot Rod. You go, Yeah. And you've got, <laughs> it's kind of some, 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 some job out of the blue that nobody's ever heard, you think nobody's ever seen. Well, I kind do of think. Fun. That's nice. As you know? an actor, I do think that's an odd thing to. To have to sort of be a part of that discussion, like whether it made money or... Because that's not your discussion. Your discussion is more about, did you come and do what you were... But it's fascinating to talk afterwards about, about shows like Hellboy, because suddenly nobody, ever, nobody wants to talk about it. They go, well, Hellboy, they go, what? What? Hellboy? I say, oh, it just it, it, it went away. It's like when sometimes if, when agents offer you a part and they mention something and you go... By the way, that didn't you mention about three weeks? And they go, oh, it went away. But <laughs> all that, these phrases they have. Yes. Hilarious. It's like, oh, no, it just, it just went away. Right. Well, you know, I want to I bring up something. I was watching uh, a bit of Sky West and Crooked. Oh, Haley Mills. Haley Mills, Good. that's right. She was a huge star. She was huge. But you know what's interesting about that? I'm watching this film, and, and I'm watching the scene where uh, you meet her in the graveyard. 
And I couldn't help feeling this rush of, I don't know if it was nostalgia or, or just a romantic notion of the idea of being an actor and having your life documented on film. Like you can go back and you can watch your life from age 19 or yeah. 18 on. Yeah. Yeah. And it made me wonder if you ever go back and watch that stuff, seeing yourself as a young man, figuring it out. You know what I mean? I know. It's, I mean, that was sweet because it was like it was, I gave her a first kiss and it was a very tender kind of moment between these two quite innocent kids. Yeah. When she plays this sort you of 17-year-old. I was like, how old was I? I was 21, I think. Yeah. And it was, yeah, it was a lovely film to make. But what is it like to see those older films like, do you ever come across them? Or? I never watch them deliberately. I mean, if I watch, you see them occasionally. It's, it's weird to watch yourself at that age. Why it, is that? The gaucheness, the sort of total innocence of what you were doing. I mean, flailing around. Knowing that at the time you thought you knew what you were doing and now going, well, I'd have, you know, I'd have done that a little. Or I'd have, oh. It's, but you've got to take it with a pinch. I mean, you can't look at yourself as that. Oh, see, you look different. It's like, did I look like that? When I was, wow. Do you remember the first time you saw yourself on the big screen? Yeah, it was my mom and dad came to the premiere of The Wild and the Willing at the Empire Leicester Square back in 1962, September. And all three of us were there, you know, my dad taking, my dad's in the tux and I'm in the tux and my mother's there. And you go, you know, I'm a, Enjoy this, it may never happen again. And that's what you gotta remember. It, all of this may never happen again. What did it feel like to watch yourself? Because I would imagine back then there were no dailies to see, so. Well, I've never been that fond of looking at them. I mean, you know, you, you, know, you tend to know. It's like watching Deadwood the other night. You watch yourself in a different, at a, at a, at a remove, in a sense. Uh, I try not to judge it. I'm pretty good at watching the whole thing. I think when you first see yourself as a naive young actor, all you do is look at you. I mean, he's like, geez, that's what I look like. But pretty soon, you tend to look at, and as I, as I, I'm not, I was brought up with a love of film. My dad loved movies, so they took me. So I was always interested, you know, when I was 16, I'd take a girl to the cinema. And say, I said, I, by the way, I said, don't you sit in the back row? I said, why would I want to sit in the back row? I want to watch the movie. I've always loved movies. I love everything about them. I love making them. I love being part of them. I love seeing what everybody does on a movie. And it's like now that people talk about, you know, about all oh, the old days, there'd be nothing like film. I mean, you're working with film. You talk to any director of photography now, they wouldn't fucking go back to film. They cut, they've gone on their set with their DIT machines. They can, they can do whatever they want. You know, in the old days, you used to be, fine, I'm finished with the lighting, now bring the actors on, now it's over to you. Nowadays, they're fiddling with their lights constantly. They never go back to the old days of when they go, I love the film in my hands. You go, you liar. You know, <laughs> you can't wait to get your little knobs around that and twiddle it and get your lighting right. What is the thing that you miss the most about the old days? I mean, it's funny when you used to turn up in England and the entire crew would be in, you know, in shirts, ties and <laughs> suits, dressed immaculately, you know, for the job ahead. I mean, really, it was a whole different... But, you know, I'm thinking back to a film I made back in 69, this big studio film. Like, I mean, the cameras are small. I mean, remember the camera then, the Mitchell, half the size of this room. Right. But the guys operating them were just as cool. And everybody contributes to a film. It's the biggest, you know, if you like... You know, I should tell that to, uh, you know, America. If you want to see socialism at work, go to a film set, because you really see everybody's, everybody's part of the job. Because you couldn't do it without somebody else. It's like saying, you know, even the actor couldn't do it without the guy behind the camera. 
So you feel part of it, you're doing something together. That's right. what I always liked about a movie. Rather than acting on the stage whereby curtain goes up and it's show off time. <laughs> right. Just me and my audience. I'm going to move them. A film is a different, you know, it's a whole different deal. I have this romantic notion, like, of uh, the French film Day for Night. Oh, this I was there when they were filming that. I was filming that. When, they, when Truffaut was filming that, we were making The Last of Sheila in the Victorine Studios. And we were there for 15 weeks. Truffaut was in and out in six weeks with Henri Descartes, photographer. They were filming up, blum, blum, blum. And he made and a we pretty good there. film. He made a pretty good movie, didn't he? What I think uh, I romanticize about that is the lack of studio oversight or the idea that there's this small group of creatives making a movie yeah. and, and I wonder if that that, that was a whole French new wave that was a pro I mean I always said that was the problem when we made the first movie of uh, when we did The Wild and the Willing it wasn't made by the working class cinema group of like Tony Richardson it was made by the studios cashing in on the idea of whatever so it had a big studio behind it when the film came out it wasn't as gritty and nitty as it should have been. And the American business was then all back in, it was back in independent. You were getting like, Scorsese was getting started, all the independents, you know? Right. 69, you had all the start of all those great American yeah. movies, and yeah. were, were, you know, Easy Rider and whatever, and the 70s, and then they all came back to Hollywood in the mid 70s. Then it became again. But all those great American films were made between the late 60s and the late 70s. Maybe you think that was a really golden period of American filmmaking. For sure, you know, yeah. Influenced by Europe, influenced by that, by the French New Wave, yeah. when Godard said, all you need is, you know, a girl, a gun, and a cigarette, or a girl, a gun, and a car, you got a movie, <laughs> which still works. Well, listen, I just wanted to finish on a thought I had. You know, in thinking about your career and how you grew into who you really were supposed to be as an actor, yeah. I do think what you've managed to do in Deadwood and what, what you've managed to do in a lot of your roles is... You've increased the bar of complexity for what a villain or a, or a baddie can be. And I always wondered if you sort of gravitated towards roles like that rather than an everyman or a hero, if, if it was just more interesting on a personal level for you to work in the gray, nuanced areas rather than the... Oh, yeah. Like, if you look at your career, is that where the interest is for yeah. you? I mean, I remember playing uh, Judas in... Uh Jesus of Nazareth back yeah. in 1975. You'd rather play Judas I'd, than I'd Jesus. I'd rather play Judas than Jesus. There's an old Italian proverb that, you know, that when Jesus got to heaven, Judas was sitting on the right hand of, Je of God because there has to be somebody to tell the story. There has to be a bad guy to fulfill the prophecy of the story. Otherwise, there's no story, is there? You know, unless there's somebody, what, what? There's a bad guy. Judas wasn't a bagger. 30 shekels was nothing. And I was like, saying, what did he do that for? No, I mean, the line, the great line is, is when Judas says, what shall I, you know, what shall I do, Jesus? And Jesus says, you know, do what you do, what you do Jesus, but do it quickly. Do it quickly, you know. And he, it's like he knows. Open, and the other line was, open your heart, not your head. And I think that's the key to all acting. You know, your head can be open, but then when you really act, you've got to open your heart as well. And then you get the perfect combination. It's funny that you find that quote so prescient, given the characters that you play. Yeah. In terms of, uh, there's as much a heart opening that has to happen for a villain as there is for... Oh, absolutely, because no villain believes they're a villain. They don't believe they're a villain. I mean, I'm sure, yeah, I'm sure, you know, Rupert Murdoch, Donald Trump, believe they are wonderful human beings. I'm sure in real life, they really do believe they are. They're making the world a better place. You're sort of giving one of the great secrets of acting, which is that 
you probably don't approach any of your villains as villains. You probably no, don't pass judgment on no. them at all. You don't judge, don't judge it like that. You judge him on his own terms and what, where he's coming from. And in your own life, it seems like you, you never pass too hard of judgment on your own decisions. You no, no, you can't do. You just try to do the best. You try to do the best you can. You try to approach a situation, you know, soberly and intelligently. You look at it from every angle. Obviously, you know, and that, that includes, you know, without reacting violently off the cuff so suddenly. It's like saying, just take a pause, you know, think about it for a minute. It's like, you know, I mean, I, I get the, you know, my mother being 98, living on her own in England, even though she's very together and whatever. When that phone rings, I go, woo, you never know. But on the other hand, I don't live my life in fear of that. But, I, you know, I, all I know is I've got to get on a plane in a month and see mom. Right. It takes me back to where I am, you know. Well, that's a pretty good place to leave it. It's been fascinating talking to you. Thank and, you. Uh, and I really enjoy your work. And thanks for coming and doing this. Thank you for asking me. Absolutely. Hey folks, that's our show. I hope you enjoyed that. Make sure you check out the Deadwood movie. And if it's been a while since you've tuned into the original Deadwood, treat yourself and go back to that series. There's still nothing else like it on television. And I love that experience of visiting the Old West every week while that lasted. But like Ian said, when something's that great, maybe it's just not destined to go forever. You can also see Ian in American Gods on Stars. And if you want to see more of us, you can go to offcamera.com. First off, as you may know, Off Camera, besides being a podcast, is also a television show. We are on the Audience Network on DirecTV every Monday and Wednesday nights. And you can find us at random times throughout the week on repeat. But if you don't have DirecTV, you can also see the show through our television subscription. For just $4.99 a month, you can have access to the entire archive of Off Camera episodes. And we've made 193 of them so far. So there really is quite a lot of content to dig into. Whether you're an actor, a writer, a director, a photographer, a painter, a musician, or if you just like to hear about people's stories and how they created their own process to bring themselves artistic and creative fulfillment, Off Camera is an amazing resource for you. So if you haven't tried it yet, take a minute at offcamera.com and dive into our deep archive. You can watch every high-definition black-and-white episode as many times as you like on any device. So check that out. And if you're enjoying this podcast and happy to have just my words in your ears. Well, I appreciate that very much too. And if you haven't subscribed to the podcast yet, it's free, it's easy, and by subscribing, you'll never miss an episode. So take a minute, go to iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe. And while you're there, if you leave us a rating and a review, it'll help others find our show. You can also find us on social media. We are Off Camera Show at Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. And I am Sam Jones on Twitter and Sam Jones Pictures on Instagram. Speaking of Instagram, many of you know I am also a photographer, and I photograph every guest that comes to do an episode of Off Camera. You can see a lot of those pictures, plus behind-the-scenes images, by going to my Instagram feed, Sam Jones Pictures. So check that out, too. And if you want to email me, I'm sam at offcamera.com. So go on your social media, tell the world how much you like Off Camera. You can suggest a guest, you can talk about a recent episode, you can even ask me a random question, and I'll probably answer it. I feel very grateful that I get to do this job and sit down and have creative conversations with the most iconic and interesting artists in the world. 
and I love sharing that with you all. So I hope we can keep this going for a long time. One of the things that keeps it going is our incredible staff that works really hard to bring you this show every week. There's Crawford Shippey, Nathan Shields, Sasha Snow, Michaela Galvin, and Kara Johnson. And thank you for tuning in each week and making this a reality. I think that's all I have to say right now, except for the most important part. Please join me next time when I sit down with actor, comedian, and musician Fred Armisen. When I was in junior high school, we had this assignment that was like, what would you do if it was the last day on Earth? And I remember classmates just coming up with really boring things that they would do. And I just, I wrote that, oh, if it was my last day alive, I'd go down to the main street of Valley Stream, New York, where I grew up, and I'd just destroy everything. I'd smash in windows, <laughs> light stores on fire. I thought it was great. And then I didn't get a grade on it. The teacher was like, will you see me after class? And then sent me to the school psychologist. And the drama of being sent to the school psychologist, it wasn't cool, like detention. It was like, no, this is you know, something's wrong deep in your head. At the time, I heard an interview on the radio with John Waters. He was talking about a shock value and being shocking. And I was like, this guy, whoever this is, I want to be like this person. And I wrote to John Waters and he wrote back and he saved my life in that he took me seriously and that he gave me a way out. Like, you can be a freak and this is how to do it. You can be an artist. Fred has been making me laugh since I met him in the year 2000. I couldn't have imagined then that he would go on to an amazing career that has included an 11-year stint at Saturday Night Live and also creating shows like Documentary Now, Portlandia, and Los Espookies. I just knew him as a funny Chicago comedian who had a weird knack for imitating Tito Puente while wearing cheap tuxedos. Our conversation starts there and gets into Fred's earliest attempts to be an artist, which led him straight to a school psychologist and subsequently to a pen pal mentorship with John Waters. I then found out his inner voice is a German journalist who killed his dreams of being a famous musician only to pave the way to international stardom and celebrity. It gets weird, folks, and that's a beautiful thing. See you next time, off camera.